Good evening, everyone, and welcome both to all of you here this evening. Thank you for coming. Um, and also welcome to those who will be listening a little bit down the line on our podcast. Um, my name's Nicola Lacey. I'm from the Departments of Law, Gender and Social Policy. And it's my very, very great pleasure to uh, welcome our three speakers this evening to our panel event on order without law, gangs, and other forms of alternative social order in and beyond the prison. Um, I'm going to start by introducing all three speakers um, in the order in which they will speak, and then I'll just say a little bit about how we've conceived the event so that you know what to expect. Um, on my immediate left is David Scarbeck. David is Senior Lecturer in Political, Philosoph Political Economy in the Department of Political Economy at King's. His research interest is to understand how people define and enforce property rights in the absence of strong, effective governments, and that general interest took him into some extremely interesting work on prison gangs, published last year, I think, as The Social Order of the Underworld, How Prison Gangs Govern the American Penal System. And that book examines how inmates create self-governance institutions to promote economic and social interactions behind bars. To David's immediate left, we have Insa Koch, uh, who joined the law department here at LSE as an assistant professor in law and anthropology uh, just last year. Insa is interested in bringing anthropology into dialogue with criminology, with legal studies, with socio-legal work, and her doctoral dissertation offered an ethnographic assessment of state-citizen relations on a council estate in England. And then to Insa's left is Lisa McKenzie from our sociology department, she, where she's a research fellow. And she's been working just recently as part of the Great British Class Survey team, which many of you will be, have been reading about um, in, the, in the papers. We were, in fact, launching uh, the book to which Lisa contributed just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Lisa's PhD research was an, another ethnographic study of St. Anne's Estate in Nottingham, and it was recently published as Getting By and received with great acclaim. Now, I wonder if I can just say a word about how, how we conceived this event. Um, this is a very, very unusual event for two different reasons, sort of related reasons. First of all, the first thing that's, well, first of all, we've got six, we've only got three people uh, on the platform, but we've got six disciplines. We've got sociology and social policy, I'm moving in the opposite direction now, anthropology and law, political science and economics. In David's work, we have an exceptionally unusual engagement by a formally trained political economist with a subject in criminal justice, which perhaps of all subjects in criminal justice has most often been treated ethnographically or qualitatively. It's very rare to have sort of formal quantitative work or attempts to assess uh, 
the subject of gangs. And, and David is really extremely unusual as a political scientist and a political economist in engaging seriously with criminal justice quite generally as a, as a political economist. So for that reason alone, this is a special event. But on top of that, what I hope will be special about our dialogue this evening is the way that we can hopefully bring David's political economic analysis into dialogue with the different ethnographic approaches of INSA and, uh, and LISA. So I think we're in for a very interesting evening. And without further ado, I'd like to invite David to come and start us off. David's going to speak for about half an hour, and then INSA next for about 15 minutes, followed by LISA the same. Thanks so much, David. Um, it's, it, it's fantastic to be here today, um, and that's because I think that uh, what we'll talk about is in, indeed a very interesting and an important question, the question of how much social cooperation can exist when people can't rely or don't rely on state-based legal institutions. I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's important uh, in part because so many people in the world today live under regimes where legal institutions are very costly to use or simply unavailable. So if we want to understand life in those countries, we need to understand how people get by when they can't rely on that strong and effective government. So I, I want to that, that's how I want to think about some of these issues. That's how I do think about them. And I want to think about it in the context of prison. Prison, theoretically, is an interesting context to study this question. People in prison are systematically different from people who are not in prison, who have not gone to prison. They tend to be poorer, less educated. They are more familiar with violence, both as victims and perpetrators. And on measures like things like self-control, they tend to poor, uh, test less poorly. Right? They have, they have less patience, less self-control. And for each one of these reasons, we would expect the consequence of that to be that they have difficulty in self-organizing or in creating order without reliance on a strong third party um, like the state. So I want to think about prisons as a way to think about this order without law question. So the way that I approach it as an economist and political scientist is to focus on the idea of governance. Governance institutions are those rules in society that define and enforce property rights. They're ways that encourage us or facilitate our engaging in uh, market activity, and they aid in the production of collective and public goods. So those governance institutions can be created by the government, by state-based legal systems, but also by a, a wide host of diverse other mechanisms and institutions in society. So my interest is, is really twofold. It's first to understand how inmates produce inmate governance institutions and why they look different in different prisons around the world today. Now, in, in order to make this conversation, uh, kind of discussion, I, I want to just maybe think a bit about why an, a person in prison will want more governance or different governance than what officials provide. So if you've been in prison, you'll often see lots of formal governance. The architecture of a building can create order. The bars that keep an inmate locked in a cell at night also simultaneously keep other people locked out, providing a degree of security and safety. So there's no doubt that some prisons do provide governance, and they provide it in relatively effective ways. But I think that there's at least two reasons why inmates want governance that officials don't provide or, or haven't provided. 
The first is safety. Even when officials do their jobs well, many inmates feel vulnerable while incarcerated. This is a picture of an overcrowded dormitory at a state prison in California from several years ago. Thankfully, the overcrowding in California has been alleviated substantially. But how would you feel if, if you lived in this room? It, it holds 150 to 250 men. There's three or four guards, correctional officers there to ensure your safety. It's very much exposed to the actions and the whims of other people when you're having a haircut, when you're taking a nap, when you're associating with friends. If somebody wants to, uh, you know, take advantage of you, if somebody wants to take your property, there's a chance that they might do that. So what we see when we look at prison is that inmates very often find that they don't want to just rely on what the state does to keep them safe. They want to create some order by investing in other ways to do that. So that's the first reason why inmates produce governance beyond what inmates provide. The second is because inmates can't rely on officials to regulate the underground economy. These are some of the 15,000 mobile phones confiscated from inmates in California in 2011, and every single one of them is contraband. In addition to mobile phones, inmates often have a demand for alcohol, drugs, tobacco, actually just a much broader range of goods and sometimes services that officials won't let them have. The consequence of illegality is that they can't rely on formal procedures to resolve disputes. If the amount of heroin or the quality of heroin that an inmate receives in a drug deal isn't what he expected, he can't turn to the prison guard and ask him to resolve the dispute. So at least for these two reasons, it's important to inmates that they find ways to produce governance, what I call in the book extra-legal governance, governance outside of the formal legal institutions. So what I'd like to think about, um, part of some preliminary research that I'm doing, is to understand why in some prisons, in some places, and sometimes, the activity that inmates are engaged in, the amount of activity dedicated to producing extra-legal governance is sometimes very substantial, and sometimes it's very small. What I'd like to kind of advance as a claim today is that when prison officials provide governance effectively, they administer competently, and they provide resources in, uh, in abundance, there's very few reasons, much fewer reasons, for inmates to invest in creating extra-legal governance institutions. When the state provides governance effectively, inmates don't need to govern. By contrast, when prison officials do not govern, when they do not administer, and when they provide few resources, there is a gap in the governance that inmates desire and it is very much in their incentive then to try to find ways to provide that governance. So my first claim is that we will see more inmate-produced governance institutions the less that the state provides the governance that inmates want, and I'll talk a little bit about that. In addition to just seeing how much activity, how, how much time is spent creating these governance institutions, I'm also interested in understanding why those institutions look different in different times and places. So in many times, prisons are governed amongst inmates in a very decentralized way. They rely on ostracism and gossip to encourage other people to conform to what they consider to be accepted behavior. Ostracism and boycott and gossip are very effective under certain situations. When prison populations are small, someone gossiping about you is costly. 
when prisons are small and you could be ostracized from your fellow peers, that's a cost. The problem is that these don't scale up well. well. When prison populations are large, people can find other people to interact with. If I ostracize someone, that person could have a host of other inmates with whom to associate for social and economic reasons. So my second claim is that when prison populations are small, inmates rely on decentralized governance because it's effective and low cost to produce, and it takes very little coordination amongst inmates to produce it. When prison populations grow large, these mechanisms fail, and inmates then turn to more centralized mechanisms to provide extra legal governance. They're going to turn to written rules. They're going to turn to bodies, you know, organizations to enforce those rules. And the basic uh, argument that I'll be advancing is that centralized institutions will create and enforce rules. They'll transmit information to people about violations of those rules, and they'll collect that information in the first place. So I'm going to sort of take a whirlwind tour of prisons around the world based on ethnographic research uh, that I've been engaging with recently uh, to provide some evidence or, or maybe a hint of an argument about why I think these claims hold some water. So first, let's think about Latin American prisons. Although not true in every case, I think it's fair to characterize Latin American prisons as being staffed by people with much less training than in prisons in the United States or England. There are much more in, there are more inmates per guard than in England and the United States. The resources available to inmates in Latin American prisons is often abysmal. Someone has called them the poverty of prisons. They often lack access to basic necessities like health care, dental care, food, clean water, um, sanitation, toilets. The, 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 the level of poverty is, I think, quite substantial. And what we see when we look at Latin American prisons is that inmate-produced governance is incredibly important, and it's also incredibly common. Lots of places will see inmates organizing amongst themselves, even simply to administer the prison, to take over the role that we would typically associate with prison officials. So, uh, for example, I've been reading work by Sasha Dark, who I think is here, who's done ethnographic work looking at an inmate-run prison in Brazil. These people don't only resolve disputes amongst themselves, they actually administer the prison. They make repairs on the buildings, they fix automobiles, they carry out security searches when visitors enter the facility. This is an example of a situation where officials have said, we're not going to provide these services, and we're going to basically delegate that to inmates to do. People in that context are often elected, even, amongst the inmates to hold and carry out these responsibilities. Now, we can take this to the extreme by looking at a Bolivian prison. And in this particular Bolivian prison, the guard's only job is to monitor who enters the prison. The National Lawyers Guild reports that they provide no rehabilitation services, minimal food, and uh, minimal health care. There's no prison officials governing the prison within the prison, almost. There's a, there's a slight presence, uh, but it's incredibly minimal. What we see instead is that inmates who enter the prison have to purchase their own cell, which they can want, sell once they leave. Um, they have to rely on their own 
efforts to create rules and to provide some order in the society. When inmates enter this prison and they buy a cell, if they can buy a cell, those cells are part of eight different housing units within the prison. And within those housing units, especially the more expensive ones, inmates have created committees to administer that area of the prison. The National Lawyers Guild, if I can read a quote from their report, it explains, each section has the feel of a neighborhood or even a small village with its own courtyard, plaza, and shops. The committee in charge of each section manages the section, repairing the sidewalks or painting the walls. Each one sets an assessment charge for prisoners in the section, and each committee is responsible for its own budget. They have committees there to organize um, cultural and educational opportunities. They have committees available to administer or to resolve disputes between inmates living in that housing area. And most of these positions are, are democratically elected. Um, so the, the extent to which inmates have filled the gap in this prison um, is quite substantial. Think by contrast, oh, I should also note, uh, they also have a, a flourishing uh, laissez-faire market economy within the prison. There are no guards there to regulate it. And so what happens is that instead of relying on what's called a gruel-like substance that officials provide once a day, is they have markets. They allow the prison officials allow people to enter the prison to sell goods and services or to buy goods and services, and inmates themselves run businesses. This is a picture of a food stand, um, which having seen the pictures of the gruel-like substance, uh, this looks to be a substantial improvement. And as one report says, they have cooks, painters, restaurateurs, carpenters, electricians, cleaners, accountants, artisans, and doctors. So what they describe is a sort of a flourishing market economy. And the reason why inmates can rely on that is, first of all, because it's not outlawed, it's not prevented, but also because they'd be just desperately poor in the first place. So allowing inmates to create and govern markets increases their resources and reduces, to some extent, the pains of imprisonment. So by contrast, Scandinavian prisons. Um, this is a picture of Coleman Prison in Norway, and it's probably nicer than lots of the university student housing. Um, there's a single bed that is uh, well-built and modern. Inmates uh, often live in small shared housing areas where they're allowed to prepare their own food. They have kitchens. Uh, these individuals can uh, either participate in education or vocational training programs. Staff in Norwegian prisons are paid for two years to learn to do, to do their job effectively compared with close to, to zero training in, in some countries. Uh, they're paid a high wage respected by uh, their peers. Um, there's a lot of governance and there's a lot of an effective administration and there's a lot of uh, resources in that prison. Um, this is for their recreational activities. Um, this is a maximum security prison in Norway. When we look at the ethnographic work on how inmates self-organize, there's incredibly little self-organization. There there's nothing like the gangs that I'll talk about in a moment. There's nothing like the voting and the elections and the, and the governance institutions that are created in that Bolivian prison. They do very little because the state does so much. So my first claim was that when the state fails to govern, inmates have a, an incentive to self-organize in response. What I'm interested in now is understanding when prison gangs uh, come into existence and are active as a source of governance. So this builds on the work from my book um, that Nikki mentioned. And I want to think about three comparisons. <clears throat> 
Um, I want to think about California through time. I want to think about California men's prisons today and English men's prisons today. And I want to think about men's and women's prisons in California today. And I want to look at those kind of comparative case studies to see if I can substantiate, substantiate to some extent, uh, my main claim about centralization. So a prison gang is an inmate-created organization that operates within the prison and sometimes outside of prison. What defines them is that membership is restrictive. It's mutually exclusive, such that you can be a member of one gang only at any particular time. And it's permanent. Um, This individual uh, swore a lifetime allegiance to the prison gang that he associates with. As this individual's tattoo on his forehead indicates, these groups are overwhelmingly racially and ethnically segregated. Now, these are striking organizations that have a dominant role in California today, but what I was fascinated to learn in writing the book is that prison gangs haven't always existed in California. Um, The first prison was built in 1851 uh, when the state uh, was uh, started. And there's nothing like the, we have no evidence of groups that meet those definitions existing in prisons during that time. In the late 1950s and 1960s is when we first see the start of these prison gangs. Um, From the 1970s to the present, the number of prison gangs, the number of their members, and maybe just as importantly, their influence on the everyday life of inmates has increased dramatically during that period. Anyone who works or has been in prison in California will attest to the fact that gang politics and gang governance color just about every interaction that exists in prisons there today. So if gangs are so important today, I wondered, why haven't they always existed? Well, it helps to go back and see the governance that existed in California prisons prior to gangs. And what we find, uh, which is actually common across many other prison settings, is that inmates follow a code of behavior. Sometimes they call it the convict code. And the basic code of good behavior was that you should never inform on another inmate, shouldn't be overly nosy in their personal business, you shouldn't gossip about them, should not lie, cheat, steal, you should pay back your debts, and you shouldn't be weak and you shouldn't whine. This was a a code of behavior for how a good inmate, a a real convict, should interact with other inmates, other convicts. And what we find when we study uh, how this system operates is that it was very decentralized. People could either choose to follow the rules or not, and people could choose to punish them for following these rules or not. There was no centralized body that decided that these were the good rules to follow. There were no elections to decide who should enforce these rules. An individual's reputation and social standing uh, was really the main uh, enforcement mechanism in this system. So if an individual didn't follow these, uh, these behaviors, he would be considered low status. That would mean he would have less access to peers for support, uh, for protection, and for access to resources. And that would, that would be costly. That would mean he was more likely to be victimized. By, by contrast, someone who followed these rules would have the support and respect of his peers and would be less likely to be targeted. Now, by most accounts, this convict code system provided governance actually fairly effectively, um, but it turns out that it no longer stands in the way that it used to. This is data on the total size of the inmate population in California. And what we see is that for the first um, 40 or 60 years, 
The average size, uh, or excuse me, the total size of the inmate population is always relatively low, fewer than 3,000 inmates, slow but steady growth. From that period to the 1970s, we see about a five-fold increase in the prison population. And from the archival research that I did during this time, it turns out that in the 50s and early 60s, there was a spate of violence that officials were struggling with, how, trying to, to learn how to uh, suppress that violence. And I argue that that conflict is an indication that the governance mechanisms are not working as well. If the institutions work well, then, then we shouldn't be observing the conflict. So during the same period that we see increases in the prison population, we see more conflict and the emergence of gangs. Which, by the way, if you go and, and read the memoirs and you interview people who worked in California prisons or, or were serving time in them, uh, they universally say that these gangs formed for protection. These were people in a dangerous environment who turned to a gang because they felt uh, that they were vulnerable. We can get a little better perspective on the inmate population. Um, that's the data that I showed you in the last period. And of course, along with the rest of the United States, it's followed by a dramatic increase in the prison population in California. Now, my earlier claim was that decentralized governance institutions work best in small populations because you can know someone's reputations and the fear of being, losing one's social status provided a check on bad behavior. In the world on the far right there, where we're consistently incarcerating more than 100,000 inmates at any point in time, you can't possibly keep track of everyone's reputations. You can't keep track of their status. And if you can't do that, then that means that I can act like a jerk, and it's not going to be as costly for me to do so. Jerk is a technical term. <laughs> so what's emerged now is these prison gangs. And the, 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 the prison economy, the prison society... Uh, exists in what I call a uh, community responsibility system. And the way that such a system works is that everybody in prison has to affiliate with some group. Um, gangs are sort of a major group that people uh, join, but there's sort of other um, quasi-gangs that they join. And the way that a system like this works is that everybody in a group is responsible for each member's actions uh, and behaviors. So if this individual doesn't pay back a drug debt to the gang on the left, not only is he required to repay it, not only is it his obligation, but it's the gang's obligation to address that issue. In California today, that, that sort of conflict would be resolved in, in a few ways. First of all, the gang leader or shot caller from both gangs would meet, and they would discuss the situation about who owes what and you know, what grounds we have to make these complaints. Typically, they'll resolve or come to a resolution about how it should be resolved. And the solution can take several forms. It may be that the member who initially incurred the debt has to contact friends on the outside to pay it off. It may be that all members of that gang pool their resources to pay off the debt. Uh, it's not uncommon for an individual to have to work the, uh, the debt off for the other gang, maybe assault uh, a correctional officer that the other gang hopes will be assaulted. Or finally, um, what's very common is that an individual, his own gang will assault him to the extent that it satisfies the demands of the other gang, that they believe that a message has been sent. 
This is very much a centralized organization. They rely on bureaucracy and procedures. They have extensive hierarchy. They administer questionnaires to new inmates to identify them. They keep records of who should be assaulted. And they have written rules in Los Angeles County Jail. All Southern Hispanic inmates receive the 28 rules that they're supposed to follow while incarcerated there. And there's someone whose job it is is to make sure you get that information and that he will organize punishment if you deviate from them. So just to give a, this is from Rebecca Trammell's excellent book. She says, this is a quote from an inmate. He says, we need to keep the boys in line. If one of our guys is a hothead or something and is always shooting off his mouth, he can get everyone into trouble. He says, we don't want to lock down. We don't want to riot. If one of my guys is messing up, then we either offer him up to the other guys or we take him down ourselves. It's very much the essence of the community being held responsible for their members' actions. Why do they do this? Why do they provide governance? Prison gangs in California today provide governance because if they don't, they'll earn much less money selling drugs, alcohol, tobacco, and mobile phones. So one inmate reports, we don't fight in a riot unless we have to. If I'm locked down, then I'm not working. And you can make some serious bank in prison, and shot callers hate it when you're in lockdown. So there's a source of governance, and it's not driven by good intentions or altruism. It's not that prison gang leaders love their fellow uh, inmates. It's that they love their profits, and they can make more of those by resolving disputes in a way that's less chaotic and less visible. So <clears throat> what about England? Coretta well, Phillips has an article in Punishment in Society, and what she finds is that the organized gang that exists in many places in the United States doesn't exist in English prisons. And uh, other research confirms that general finding that the prison gang problem that exists in California hasn't taken root here. It hasn't really um, 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 become as entrenched and, and, and challenging. Why might that be the case? Well, my argument is that the size of the prison matters because that determines whether you can use decentralized mechanisms or not. 721 inmates on average fill, fill prisons in England and Wales, compared to 3,400 in California. It's just a drastically different environment where knowing people's reputations is more feasible in one and impossible in the other. The largest prison in England and Wales is smaller than the smallest prison in California. They're just entirely different ways to do prison policy. What we see instead, um, to, my, to my reading, sounds a lot like the way that the convict code system there's loose affiliations based on postcodes and based on people that you knew in the street. There's not uh, lifetime commitments. There's not racial segregation. Um, instead, the way that men seem to organize in prisons here looks a lot like they did in California in 1950. Okay. And maybe that's just the last example I'll look at. Uh, <laughs> Orange is the new black. Uh, I, I watch it, but only, only, only because uh, for research reasons. Um, it, it's a very fictionalized account, and we have people with more expertise who can tell you about that. The memoir is a little bit better and not entirely inconsistent, but of course there's a, an academic literature that studies women's social organization in, in California and other places. And what we see amongst women is that they typically form what they call families. So instead of hundreds of members in a prison gang, there's two, four, five women. They sort of take on family-oriented roles as the mom or the dad or kids. They're not mutually exclusive in that there can be ties between the families. They're not permanent. They're not racially segregated. They care about kind of 
the code, uh, and they enforce the code through gossip and through ostracism and sometimes violence. So again, I, I guess I would like to put forth the claim tentatively that the social organization looks a lot like maybe men's prisons today in this country and maybe men's prisons previously. Of course, there was a substantial increase in the inmate population in, Cal- in California, um, but when we put that into perspective versus men's prisons, there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no way that the women's prisons are anywhere near as large. It's a very different environment. So another way to say that is that women's prisons today uh, look size-wise about the same as men's prisons previously. So <clears throat> California, as, as many of us know, has a prison problem. They incarcerate far more than uh, any other country in the world. Compared to other OECD countries, uh, their prison use rate is a clear outlier. And my argument is that the prison gang problem that is in some ways very unique to California is, and is therefore exceptional, is not unrelated to this exceptional problem. American exceptionalism um, exists in both of these. And I think that's not an accident. I think that the way to understand the relation between these two things is that it's huge prisons and prison populations that drive the need for a centralized governance, and that's why we have prison gangs today. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, David. Insa. Thank you. Okay, um, I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, so I'll just talk. Um, so thank you, Nikki, first of all, for inviting me to speak tonight. It's um, a huge honor to be here. Um, as Nikki said, I'm an anthropologist, and I've been carrying out ethnographic research on council estates in England since 2009. Um, now, when Nikki invited me to speak tonight, I sort of hesitated for a moment. Um, unlike in David's case, I've never really worked with gangs, nor would the people who've assisted me in my research say that gangs necessarily operate in their neighborhoods. But then I sort of started thinking about it a bit more. And what I realized is that a lot of the violence that does happen in the neighborhoods where I work is frequently explained by the media, but also by agents of the criminal justice system as as sort of evidence of gangs operating in these neighborhoods. And so I thought what I'd like to do today really is offer an alternative explanation of the social logic that informs at least some of the violence that I came across during my research on the estates. And I really want to do this in sort of three parts. I'll start off by saying a little bit about um, what an anthropological perspective on social order looks like and how it might be a bit different from the sort of perspective that David um, introduced us to um, as a political economist. I will then move on to my own research and I'll conclude with some more general remarks about the debate on extra-legal governance that we're having tonight. And really what I want to do today is just sort of challenge dominant portrayals of pathological subcultures and broken communities that have tended to prevail debates about gangs, at least in this country. Okay, so I'll introduce the sort of anthropological perspective, and I want to do that by going back for a second to uh, David's paper, um, I think sort of one of the most important achievements of David's work, really, is to free the study of social order from its received focus on formal governance institutions. So we've just heard David argues that social order in the prison world 
is quite often maintained by what he calls extra-legal governance institutions. And the sort of gangs that run America's prisons would be the most extreme example of that sort of form of extra-legal governance. And I think from a sort of anthropological point of view, David's argument is very compelling. So anthropologists have been interested for a long time, really, to show that informal social institutions are often equally, if not actually more important than formal state institutions. So it's a finding that very much appeals, I think, to an anthropologist. But I think there are also some crucial differences, really, between a political science perspective or a political economist perspective and the perspective of an anthropologist. And I think most importantly, um, David is interested to identify the general conditions under which extra-legal governance emerges. And for him, um, informal social orders are a sort of rational response to the weaknesses of former governance, so to sort of state failure, I guess, in these institutions. I think anthropologists, by contrast, tend to see informal orders not so much as a sort of replacement or as a substitute um, for former governance um, that sort of emerge under conditions of lack. But they rather tend to look at social orders or informal social orders as meaningful systems in and by themselves. Okay? That's sort of less replacement for something that's broken down and they're more interested in understanding the sort of logic that informs these social orders in their own right. And anthropologists mainly use ethnography as their main tool to sort of access and understand these social orders. Um, just to explain in a few words the sort of anthropological perspective a little bit more, um, it can sort of be traced right back to one of the founding fathers in the discipline in anthropology, a guy called Malinowski, um, who incidentally was also based here at the LSE in the 1920s and 1930s, and all the anthropologists in the room will know all about Malinowski. Um, Malinowski was basically interested to understand a very simple question. Um, he wanted to understand how the Trobrian Islanders in Melanesia, which is where he did most of, I think, all of his work, actually, managed to maintain order in the absence of any kind of institutional structure that we in the West would recognize as the state. Yeah, so that was his sort of basic question. And to understand this issue, he spent lots of time living with the Trobrian Islanders and participating in their everyday lives. And what he argued, in essence, was that um, Trobrian Islanders simply don't have a need for a former state. Okay? They don't need a state to run their affairs. And the reason why they don't need a state is because social order is maintained through reciprocal exchange relations that create lasting relations between people and, as a consequence, also between communities. Now, Malinowski obviously developed his insights in the context of a very different society a very long time ago. But what I want to suggest tonight is that I think his insights continue to be quite relevant or to be quite helpful when it comes to understanding so-called gangs and gang violence today. Um, and before... I explain what I mean by that. I just want to start by recalling um, very briefly an incident um, from my own field works that happened while I was doing research. And that was widely reported in the local media as gang violence at the time. Okay? So I'm going to turn to a case study uh, from my own research. Okay, so it was an ordinary morning on the estate when the news said that Tyron 
a local black young man, age 21, and a father of one, had been stabbed the night before while out in a nightclub in town. The news spread like wildfire as people were talking about it in the community centre, the pub, and outside the shops. And gradually, I was able to piece together what had happened. It seemed that Tyron had gotten into dispute with another young man, Lee, um, who was 16 at the time, over a silver chain that Tyron had allegedly stolen off Lee. And when Lee saw Tyron in the nightclub a few days later, he walked up to him and he knifed him in his heart and liver. Now, Tyron died the same night in hospital. Lee was subsequently arrested by the police. Um, the situation took a turn for the worse in the following weeks. I heard people say that there would be revenge, that you have to take an eye for an eye, and that you kill or get killed. Retaliatory acts were committed against Lee's family and his friends. And Lee's own friends re responded by threatening to kill any witnesses who'd speak up against Lee in the court trial. In the end, Lee was convicted of murder, and four young men were charged with contempt of court for witness intimidation during the, the, the murder trial. Now, from an outsider's point of view, these sorts of events may well appear as senseless and unintelligible violence. So in the coverage that accompanied the trial, the media did speak a lot about sort of gangs operating in the local town, and it sort of very much relied on a language of broken communities and sort of a sink estates to make sense of what had happened. But I think to adopt these narratives would mean to do injustice to how local residents made sense of the events as they related to the young men as their sons, their boyfriends, and their neighbors, okay, people they knew very intimately from living with them. So people were shocked that a dispute over chain could have gone this far, could have resulted in death. A Facebook tribute to Taryn at the time said, too many of our boys are going down, rest in peace, soldier. But at the same time, and this really is the key point that interests me here, um, people also understood that there was a certain logic to the escalation of violence okay, that followed the initial stabbing. And that was a logic, I think, that wasn't just reducible to some idea of pathological gang cultures, but that actually resonated with broader sort of social principles or ideas that are quite important to people's daily lives. And I think to understand this point, um, it's, it's really necessary to step outside of the moments of violence that I've just described and to turn to broader analysis of informal social orders um, on the estate. And I want to do that now in the last five minutes or so, and I want to do that by bringing the discussion back um, at this point to Malinowski. So I said earlier that um, Malinowski's achievement was to show that social order amongst Trebran Islanders was maintained not by the state, okay, they didn't need a state, but rather by these sort of informal reciprocal ex uh, exchange relations between individuals. And the reason why I mention Malinowski is because I think his analysis continues to be relevant for understanding life on the estates where I work um, today. There's a growing body of ethnographic writing um, which has shown that support networks of mutual care and protection remain central okay, in an environment that's marked uh, really by just high unemployment, poor housing conditions, and insufficient welfare support. And... Um, Lisa's book that was published last year, was it? This year. This year, this year, sorry, this year, really makes um, a very important contribution to that sort of debate. 
Um, now, what interests me here is that these sort of networks of mutual exchange are not too dissimilar from the networks of reciprocal exchange that Malinowski described in relation to the Trobriand Islanders. Okay? So, for example, it's by sharing money, employment opportunities, child-caring duties, but crucially also by offering a sort of collective front against enemies in situations of threat that social relations between kin and friends are sort of built and maintained. And I think the point really is that offering protection um, to, say, a friend or kin member um, has an importance beyond the act itself. Okay? It is sort of proof of being a good person, of being a good kin member or good friend, um, of being a moral person, essentially. Now, what I want to suggest is that I think it's within the sort of broader logic of commitments and loyalties that we can begin to position the events that I mentioned earlier, so the stabbing and the violence that happened in its aftermath. Um, in brief, what I want to suggest is that people understood that the um, initial stabbing that involved the two young men, Tyron and Lee, wouldn't stay just between two individuals, okay? It sort of implicated kins and friends on either side as they had to step in to assert their alliances, implicating them in what anthropologists have called a moral economy of violence. That is to say, in sort of acts of violence that became part of a moral economy of exchange relations between friends and kin. And that actually, I don't think, is too dissimilar from the community responsibility system that you described earlier, David. So I spoke to the mother of a 17-year-old young man, uh, one of Lee's friends, who was charged with contempt of court and sentenced to two years in prison. And she said to me, It's terrible, all this violence. My son wasn't there the night of the stabbing. He said if he had been, he wouldn't have let it happen. But now he couldn't have let his friend down. Okay, so... I guess I just sort of want to conclude at this point by asking what an anthropological study of social order can contribute to broader debates on extra-legal governance. I think David has brilliantly shown from the perspective of a political economist or political scientist that we ought to think of extra-legal governance really not as an exception, but as a productive and a sort of expected feature of social life. And I think an anthropological perspective can contribute to that endeavor by adding a focus on struggle and on meaning as it sort of tries to understand how people um, strive to pursue meaningful lives, often under very harsh conditions. I think in this process, anthropologists can sort of help to unco uncover the particular logics that drive people to their actions and ultimately also to render more humane, I think, what may otherwise remain senseless or unintelligible behavior. Um, at the same time, and this really is my last point, um, I think while I've emphasized the need to understand particular social orders and particular places and time, I, I want to make clear that my intention is not to argue that sort of cultures make people act in violent ways. Um, I think unlike Malinowski, who very much saw Trober in society as forming a closed cultural social system, it's really crucial to recognize that the sort of interpersonal violence that people commit on the streets is ultimately situated in a broader context um, of what sociologists and anthropologists call structural violence. Okay? That is to say, young people like Lee or Tyron 
grow up in extremely precarious environments that are marked by poverty, social exclusion, and the everlasting threat of victimization. And it is within these environments that I think violence can become a meaningful currency for exchange, okay? as people sort of struggle to assert themselves as good Kim members or as good friends, as good persons. And I think this is a point, this is something that policy really tends to forget when it adopts a very repressive approach in dealing with so-called gangs, um, which ranges really from the criminalization of young people just hanging out in groups through things like anti-social behavior policies, right through to the use of the joint enterprise doctrine in criminal cases, which is something that I think Lisa will be talking about in more depth in a minute much of which, I should also say, has disproportionately targeted young black men. Okay? So I think ultimately, then, really, the issue of what to do with so-called gang violence is not a question that should be left to the sort of repressive arms of the state, to the criminal law alone. It is first and foremost a political issue that needs to address the structural conditions under which particular social and moral orders take on a violent form. Okay. Going to stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Insa, Lisa. Well, can I just sort of echo uh, thank you for inviting me here today? Um, it's, it's not unusual at the moment, actually, for me to be asked to sort of speak at. at sort of outer sociology discipline events um, and I think that can only be a good thing actually that we start to talk about issues of inequality of social order and social justice across all disciplines because it, it, it affects all of us so I think I was going to do a, a, a sort of really simple presentation but I think after listening to Insa and David um, I think I'm going to turn my presentation completely around now <laughs> and I think what I want to look at is, and thank you, Insa, for sort of leaving us with violence and the thoughts of violence, because I think what I want to think about really is, I want to twist this and think about state violence. And I want to think about who are the biggest gangs. And um, for me, the biggest gang in the UK is the police. Um, and also, we have an elite in this country uh, that are very skilled at keeping social order. So I think that's where I'm going to start from. So I'm going to start... So I've, so I've started to think about value systems in Britain, but also British social order, and what does that actually mean? Um, well, the British, the United Kingdom, we're, br we're brilliant. We're bloody brilliant at keeping order. And actually, I spend many, mo most of my time, actually, uh, on picket lines standing across the road from police. And what they tell me all the time is the reason why the police are here is to keep order. Keeping order in Britain is probably the most important thing of British values. We must always be orderly. We must form queues. We must be polite. We must protest and ask permission, and we must give, we must give lots of uh, reasons for our protests. So this is Peterloo, if any of you didn't know. Um, this is the massacre of Peterloo. This is working-class people protesting, um, fighting for equality, and fighting for justice. Um, and there are so many accounts 
that we could talk about today about how oppressed people in Britain and all over the world um, have stood and fought for justice and actually it's the state violence that has attacked them. It's the, it's the, it's the greater gang and it's the gang with the most power. Um, and I think where I'd like to stay, say before I go into the council estate that I lived for 22 years and that I studied is I'd just like to say something about our British order system um, which has always practiced keeping order uh, in, in our own country um, and has done that very well. And we have hundreds and hundreds, well, actually, we have thousands of years of history making sure that order is kept in this country. Um, and then what we did is we exported that all over the world through our colonial ideology. And we made sure that the British system of order was exported from everywhere, which I would say we could link that to the Californian prisons, <laughs> right through to India, through the West Indies, and all over the world. British order um, has been good at keeping order. So I think if we just start there, and then what we're going to do now is sort of think about on a local level. So my research, um, my PhD research, and then I did a, a, a fellowship um, was in St. Anne's in Nottingham. And what I've tried to do is think about David's presentation and David's work, but think about it in the context of Britain and, and sort of the value system of working-class people in Britain. So the council estate that I lived on for 22 years is called the St. Anne's Estate in Nottingham. This is it. It's a typical 1970s-built council estate, uh, it is the estate in Nottingham that you shouldn't go to. It's the estate that has the gangs, has the guns, has the knives, has the single mums, um, and you should definitely stay away from it, especially if you're a student, apparently. In my first week when I was an undergraduate at the University of Nottingham, I was 31, and I'd lived on this estate for many years with my son, um, and I was told in the first week at the University of Nottingham that Nottingham is a great place, and you probably all remember your first weeks at university where you get that speech, you are at the best university, you're going to have the best time, this is the best city. And this is what we were told in Nottingham, except do not go here. <laughs> Students, do not go here, because this is bad, you will be robbed. You will be stabbed. And actually, there's lots of forums, lots of student forums in Nottingham telling you how to be a student in Nottingham. And you can probably see those on any university sort of linked websites. You must do this in this place. You must do that. But there's always a place that you mustn't go to. There's always a place that you as a student, as part of this wonderful student body um, and this intellectual life, there's a place that you shouldn't go to. And in Nottingham... It's St. Anne's. Well, that was very difficult for me because I lived there. <laughs> so, <laughs> as you can imagine, that doesn't make you feel very good about yourself. Does it? It, doesn't, it doesn't make you feel great about yourself when you are in a, in, a, in a university and the people there are telling you that the place where you live, where your family lives, where your friends and your loved ones live, is actually the place where you shouldn't go. 
And so that's the sort of background for council estates in Britain. We've all got them in every single city, and they are all misrepresented. They are all misunderstood. Um, and that's really where I've lived all my life. So sort of drawing on some of the, the images that David showed, what I want to show really is this is St. Anne's. David showed how the locks and the bars and the gates in the prison system are there to keep order and how they are there, um, the state uses them to protect and control. Well, what I would argue is in this council estate in Nottingham, and I know that this is all over the country, is there are bars and locks and gates all over. And you can see from these pictures. Um, I haven't got time today to really tell you the stories behind these pictures, but I have told them before. This is the precinct, and that's the post office, and again, the co-op store. Um, and the, all you can see there is locks and bars. That picture on the, right on the other side... That was taken by a group of small children, five-year-old children, in their school playground. And they took that photograph to look at Nottingham. I asked them what they liked best about the city that they lived in. And they said they liked town, the city, because it got McDonald's in it. Um, and they took that photograph. So where you're sitting now is you can see the city of Nottingham through, from the lens of the young children that goes to this school. And then at the bottom, that's the school from the outside. So the top is the school from the inside, the bottom is the school from the outside. And locks and bars and gates is a feature of this estate. Um, and I would say it's probably the same thing, it's to keep order. Now what we've got to think about is when I was on my first day at the University of Nottingham and I was being told, don't go to St Anne's, I've got to sort of add this and think, well, what, does, what do these images tell us as well? So what does the bars and the locks and the gates tell those that live inside that estate, but also what is it saying to those on the outside? Well, how is this representing the people who live in this community? And... Even though some of, I, some of, the, some of the, the sort of the gang culture in America, I, I don't really recognise it um, in the same way on the council estates in the UK. There are loose gang affiliations, but they're not, they're not the same. But there is a localism and there is a pride, and I think that pride is about defiance, and it's about being defiant to that sort of larger system of British control. And that's one of the things that I found right throughout my research, that values and value systems on the estate were strong. And actually it was linked to a local pride, and it was something that I called being St Anne's. So when I spoke to people on the estate and I said, tell me something about yourself, they'd say, well, I'm typical St Anne's. And I'd say, well... I mean, I, actually, at first, I went, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, because I knew what that meant. But then I realised that my reader didn't know what that meant. So I had to unpack that, and that was part of my PhD, was unpacking what it meant to be, say, Anne's. And part of that was actually this defiance. This is who we are. The rest of the country might think we're bad, mad, and dangerous, but actually, there is something great about us, and it's that defiance 
And what they often said to me is, could they, and I don't know who they mean by they, but I mean probably the wider public, could they live one day in our lives? No. So the thing is, is we are proud of who we are because our lives are so difficult and we're proud of that. And there are many, many ways that people on the estate showed me their pride. And I think this is kind of, there is the links between sort of the gangs in the USA. Um, this picture here is, uh, is a T-shirt that's made on the estate by the young people and it's sold. It's not very expensive. It's about a fiver. But the picture actually is St. Anne's. It's the same picture that the kids took. Um, but that's the way that the people on the estate see their community. Not dark and full of gates and locks, but bright and interesting and contemporary and urban and modern. And then the, the tattoo on the other side, and I know today, you have talked about tattoos today, haven't you? Tattoos are equally as important. Um, and this tattoo is from a woman on the estate, and it says SV. And what that is, it's that allegiance to the estate. So perhaps not a gang membership, but actually an estate, a, a community. SV stands for Stansville, um, which is kind of a nickname for the estate. So my, I suppose my... Have I got... We're all right? Okay. Um, I suppose my connection to, to gangs and gang involvement, even if I could sort of say it in those loose terms really, was in August 2011 in Nottingham. Um, all over the country in August 2011, there were what, what, we, what we had or what some have called riots, the English riots. And that was because uh, a young man, Mark Duggan, um, was murdered on the streets of Tottenham by the Metropolitan Police. And I don't say that word lightly, murdered, but the young man at the time had no gun on him. Um, and at that instant that he was murdered, he was not a threat. So I would say murdered, and I've been sort of slated for saying that. But what this, what this did on that night in August is it sparked dissent throughout the country. But it sparked dissent, really, in those communities that felt that state oppression, and St. Anne's was one of those. Um, the young people on the estate in Nottingham were very well versed with stop and search in their cars, on their person. They were very well versed in order and what they should and shouldn't do. And on this two night, and it was only two nights in Nottingham, that there was a sense that actually order could be disbanded and we could take the streets back. And that's very powerful. And actually, just for, in, in fact, really, it was just one night. So this idea that um, during the 2011 riots, that there was something about mass consumption or just mindlessly smashing things up, I would really disagree with that. Um, in Nottingham, these are the pictures from, in Nottingham from that night. Uh, this picture is uh, a young lad who is stood on the roof of the private school, um, in Nottingham, which is Nottingham High School. 
and they actually, Black Boat, BB'd me, it was BB at the time, um, they BB'd me and said, guess where we are? We're on the roof of that school that you hate. I was like, goodbye, don't talk to me again, who are you? Because <laughs> at the time, people were being arrested and put in prison just for simply saying these things. Um, the picture on the far left is a police station in Nottingham that was firebombed. And again, this was a form, this was a form of sort of fighting against that social order. So this idea that all over the UK at the time people were breaking into JD Sports to nick trainers, actually that wasn't the case. There were targets that, that people um, were picking because of social order and because of power. And in Nottingham, that police station was one. And then the bottom is a young man who was in my research who was being arrested. Um, he'd been pulled down off the school roof that day. And so what I wanted to, what, I, what I'll finish with really is how this sort of social order is so strong in the UK and these and our hundreds of years of history that we've got in maintaining social order manifests itself. I was in Greece this year and someone asked me, um, actually it was a police officer, it was a riot police officer, I was speaking at an event like this, and he asked me how... You know, why, did, didn't, why disorder didn't break out more often in Britain? You know, why were we not a, a people of, of disorder? Why didn't we not use our rights to protest in the same way as that they did in, in Greece? And I thought about this, and what I thought about is the way that our system is tightly controlled, the way that um, we need permissions to protest, the way that we are the most watched people in the, country, in the world the amount of CCTV, but also our laws. And one of the laws that I have recently and unfortunately been um, connected to is the joint enterprise. Um, I very recently, in fact just a few weeks ago, did my own very small uh, unexpected ethnography on yeah. the uh, British legal system. Uh, after I was arrested on a protest, and then I was um, done with joint enterprise. And that was actually the first case that I believe that joint enterprise has been used on a protester. And what joint enterprise means is that you are responsible for anything that anybody does in that area or wherever the police have deemed is a particular area. Um, I've just started working with Jengba, and if any of you don't know Jengba, please look them up. They do fantastic work. Uh, my case brought attention to joint enterprise, but actually joint enterprise has been used on working class, black minority people, and particularly young men for the last 10 years um, in a terribly indiscriminate and unfair way. So I think what I'll do is I'll just leave it there because I'm sure we've got lots of questions. But... Um, I think my presentation tonight really is about switching that round, thinking about violent, violence, but from the state. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Lisa, and thank you to all three of our speakers. So we now have just about 20 minutes for, uh, for 
questions and discussion. And just while you're gathering your thoughts and the, the microphones are coming around, let's just think about the way in which um, we've heard some really interesting themes, I think, coming out between these three talks. Uh, not just about the way in which... Um, I mean, there was an interesting resonance, I thought, between David and Insa in the sense that... Um, and actually, it's also brought out by your position, Lisa, that um, gang is a very loaded word. In, in popular discourse, gang is, is... You know, we all know that gang is not good, uh, certainly in any kind of criminal justice context. And yet, in their different ways, all three of our speakers today have, have illuminated the way in which as it were, gangs are simply forms of ordering and forms of, of not just practical ordering but meaning-giving, which has came out very particularly here. And I think one of the things that perhaps um, we, we haven't talked about but is, is raised by the interaction between these papers and is very, uh, very vividly by um, what happened with the 2011 Rats. And we should remember, of course, that, that the people who killed Mark Duggan were not convicted of his murder. But because, precisely because these, uh, these issues are about the creation of alternative systems of value and meaning as well as of order in a practical sense, they can actually produce tremendously difficult social, you know, social issues. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask... Uh, the, we have people with microphones so that everybody, including the people listening and watching on podcasts later, will be able to hear the questions. Um, and I'd like to ask, I'm going to take questions in groups of three, if I may. I'd like you to ask you to, if you wouldn't mind, keep your questions reasonably brief and to tell us who you are before you ask your question. So could I take uh, Coretta to start with? Well, in fact... If somebody could get the microphone along to correction, then I'll take you because you're a little more accessible. The gentleman in the back, yeah, with the white T-shirt. Yeah, just wait for the microphone and tell us who you are. Thank you. And then... Thank you. Am I going first? Sorry. Okay, we, okay, we'll take Coretta first and then you. And then, yeah. Thanks. Um, I'm Coretta Phillips from the Department of Social Policy here at the LSE. Um, I'm a criminologist and, and so I'm directed my question at least um, initially to David. Um, I think it's really useful and valuable to have the insights of other disciplines thinking about the prison context. I guess I had two questions that troubled me about your analysis in the sense that firstly my sense as somebody who's done ethnographic research in prisons is that prisoners experience their life on the wings and in the dormitories that you showed depicted in, in one of your images. And in those kinds of situations, reputational information is readily available. And that's as true as much in the American context as it is in others. Um, and it struck me, given the increased sentence length that many prisoners, particularly in the Californian system, are, are now experiencing, once again, that sort of reputational information is really readily available. Um, so I'm wondering whether some of your arguments may relate to California but not other parts of the US, not other parts of the prison system. And also I think the, the other point is in relation to how could we explain the emergence of prison gangs in the UK and certainly there is some research which suggests that they might be evident in the um, maximum security estate. 
Greta, can I ask you to just pass the, the um, microphone to the guy in front of you? Yes. <laughs> and then I'll take you next at the back and then you. Hi, I'm Get Your Share on Twitter. Uh, this is to uh, David. Um, uh, could uh, the, uh, the fact that the prisons are so bad in California and in America be uh, linked to the fact how much they lead to that country despise their working class and actually have no uh, attention whatsoever to look after them or support them in any way whatsoever could lead to such, such a drop of uh, any law and order. Thank you. Thank you. And lo- third time lucky. <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> uh, my name's Lucien. Um, I've been doing some work with a non-profit company that does mediation interventions in... Um, what's typically gang-associated violence, predominantly in London, uh, sometimes in Nottingham and elsewhere. And um, we get referrals predominantly, often from the police, where we get briefs on a violent situation, details of people's probable affiliations, and then we go and cold call, knock on people's doors, and offer them mediation to informally, confidentially settle disputes so that violence doesn't escalate. Um, and in that work I've bounced around a few different locations in London and there seem to be um, a few different things happening. One is that a lot of the violence um, is clearly connected to people who are involved in drug dealing, having disputes over territory. Um, it is, there's clearly a link between um, yeah, competition over drug trade and a lot of street violence, and that does involve a lot of young people, young men, sort of, I don't know, <laughs> teenagers plus. Um, and so the criminal economy is part, of, is part of the picture. I'd be interested if that could be elaborated on in your analysis. Um, but also I'm interested in hearing more about, um, I guess my interest at the moment is, is in the UK, um, more about what you think are sensible interventions, funnily enough, I'm asking the so what do we do question. Um, And it's clear there are a lot of factors at play. Um, There was the film about um, an attempt at gang mediation in Birmingham, which really made clear how the riots were a political moment, which led to, which actually created the opportunity for people on different sides of factions been warring for years to come together. So that kind of is complemented by what you've said about Nottingham. Um, There was a talk, there was a a conference at SOAS yesterday, about defend the right to protest, and there are a lot of people whose family members have been killed with impunity by the police talking, and a lot of talk about Black Lives Matter and structural violence against not only black populations but Muslim populations in this country and the ordering. So a lot of things sort of come together in this talk that are being discussed elsewhere. Um, But yeah, I guess just my question is essentially those two things. Number one, there is clearly organised criminality and profit is a part of the violence and the stabbing and the shooting that's happening all over London and all over the country. Um, it didn't really come up in your analysis. I'd love to hear more about it. And secondly, for people who are interested in addressing these issues, at least making life less violent for more people, what do you think are the implications of your research? And I guess I'm talking about immediate physical violence where people get stabbed or shot. Thank you. I'm going to now go back to the panel for... Um, we, could, we could spend the rest of the evening discussing these three very interesting questions but I'm going to ask the panel to just make some quick interventions and responses 
Um, thanks very much, Creta, for your question. I think it's great. Um, I'm making an argument that uh, reputations matter, and if we don't know reputations, then we need gangs. And you're bringing up, I think, a, an interesting question, which is, will they live life on the wings? They're always talking to them. They're always seen. It's e- it may be very easy to sort of know locally you know, w- what someone's standing is. And I, I think that's um, potentially important. Um, I think that it, it's not... Um, problematic in the following sense, that the wings in a prison are now not just a single wing, but many wings, holding hundreds of people each, thousands of people out of prison. There's shifting through those wings. That means that I don't know my neighbors often or or always. The, The sentence length point is also interesting, because if people are in prison for longer, then you can get to know their reputation. Um, What's interesting on sentencing length is that Although longer sentences have become more common, the median sentence length hasn't changed. So in that, that's one way of saying that the typical person in prison is still not there for a very long time, you know, one and a half to two years. So there are some people who are around a long time, but most people are not. And I think that that is sort of consistent with this argument that it's not easy to keep track of, you know, kind of everyone's social standing. It, it would also require some explanation, a different explanation for why they rely on extensive um, trend, uh, correspondence between prisons, which, by the way, prisons in California have increased from four and five at the time of the convict code to 34. And again, someone can serve a two-year print prison sentence in three prisons. So there's shift between those things. What gangs have done that I think I, I didn't really discuss very much is that they mail letters to each other in different prisons. Who is this guy? Is he in good standing? They have lists, enemies lists. Um, there are the new arrival questionnaires that ask them, you know, what street gang were you from? What were you convicted of? Do you have family in prison? So there's a lot of, it seems like they're investing a lot in gathering information. That makes me think that it's because they don't have enough of the information that they want just by being on the wings. Um, there's an, an interesting question about, what was it, that America despises the working class? The elite. Not the elite, okay. Um, well... Yeah, so the, the, that, that's, I think, um, maybe a little outside of the purview of my work. Uh, Nick, Nikki and David Soskis have an article that might be relevant, but um, I think the challenge analytically is to explain the changes across time and in different states. So to go back to Coretta's question, there's no prison gangs in, or not a serious prison gang problem in lots of states. And potentially these small states like Wyoming and Vermont that don't have serious prison gang problems, they also don't have very big prisons or, or prison populations. So there might be some explanation there. But the elite disapproving of the working class isn't quite, I guess, empirically loaded enough to, to see if it can explain that historical or spatial variation in the United States. Lisa, did you want to... Um. Uh, I mean, I guess most of the questions were directed to David. Maybe just very brief in the question on what could be sensible interventions, um, which I think came from Lucien, yeah, from you over there. Um, I guess any kind of intervention that doesn't start maybe solely with a criminal law or with a kind of oppressive approach is in itself already a very sensible um, starting point, I think. Um, The law or policy has tended to adopt an extremely repressive approach towards this issue of gangs, mainly just using the criminal law to um, intervene even in cases where people haven't actually committed any crimes, um, just by calling people gangs. Um, and I think moving away from that must be the, f- the sort of starting point for any kind of policy intervention. Um, and 
obviously that in itself is not sufficient. Um, I think if we're talking about direct, immediate responses, there's lots and lots of really good youth work that's happening around the country, which is all about just removing young people um, kind of from the sort of most immediate threatening hostile environments that they're in and giving them alternative opportunities, other things to do. Um, but I think ultimately um, the response has to be more structural and there's only that much that any individual or NGO or charity can do. You know, it's a political issue. Um, if you look at research of how um, or where violence happens, it's, there's a very clear picture here. Violence happens in the most deprived poor neighborhoods and that I think shows us a lot about the structural causes of that violence. Before I hand over to Lisa to respond to the questions, I'm going to abuse the chair by just following up what Insa had to say in response to, to your question. And that there is, to, to back up the point about, you know, repression often makes matters worse. There's actually some interesting evidence from uh, a policy in Chicago where um, the police decided the thing to do was simply lock up all the gang leaders. And it caused absolute chaos because, of course, the gangs actually produce a huge, I mean, of course, they, of course they're involved in some very serious violence in Chicago. There's no doubt about it. It's a huge amount of evidence. But they also produce a lot of very quotidian social order. Uh, and so uh, getting rid of their structure of organisation is really a very bad idea. Lisa, sorry to... I mean, sort of uh, continuing from that, um, there are, I mean, I've, I have evidence of that as well, where the police in Nottingham, the police in Nottingham uh, for a long time have used um, joint enterprise for cleaning up uh, the, the estate. And I remember in about 2007 uh, there was a group called the Nottingham 12 and they were a group and you, you are right Lucian that there is a link to drug dealing and, and sort of criminality uh, the police locked all 12 of this, this group together or gang um, for a shooting that had happened in Sheffield someone was they, they murdered somebody a, a very innocent person in Sheffield just for being in the wrong place the wrong time one person pulled the trigger but all 12 went to prison um, under joint enterprise um, what followed was actually uh, in the spot that this 12 had, had situated themselves for drug dealing within a couple of weeks a younger group had moved on to that spot and were actually just doing the same things. In the 2011 riots uh, in Nottingham, that new group were then all arrested under rioting and joint enterprise. And again, just within a few days, there was a new younger group that actually um, had gone back into that spot. So I could map, really, the way, the, the way that spot had changed. Well, it stayed the same as a drug dealing spot, but just the different groups admit, had changed. Um, and each group before them had been, as, had been cleaned up by the police on joint enterprise. So there is a, I mean, there is a strong connection to drug dealing, to criminality. But again, I think that's a structural response because, you know, I would argue, and again, really controversially, that drug dealing um, and criminality is a rational response to... Living in living in a poor neighbourhood, you know, and again, that's a controversial thing to say. But as someone that has lived, grown up, worked, and researched, um, being somebody, and they say, and this is what I say in my book, being somebody on the estate is better than being nobody anywhere. 
I think this is where this, this theme about the rationality yeah. of, uh, of these forms of alternative order is, is a very common theme. So I think we can fit in two extremely quick questions. This young woman here and the lady at the back. And if you could make them very, very quick. Thank you. I'll try and be as brief as possible, but I'm so excited to be here. So my name is Temi Mwale. Um, I set up an organization called Gao the Gang. We are rebranding because I don't agree with the term of gangs. I'm going to come on to that. Um, when I was 16, following the murder of a childhood friend of mine, I'm currently in my second year doing a law degree here at the LSE. I'm also doing a dissertation, which INSA is supervising me on, looking at the criminal law and its approaches to tackling loosely called gangs. Um, and I just wanted to touch on this idea of definitions because I didn't really think it had been mentioned that much today. And I do think it's important because, David, you did make... Um, I think from my notes, a brief allusion to something that was a kind of definition for the gangs that you were talking about. But here, we're very quick to use this term gang, and it's more in relation to a moral panic and hysteria rather than any kind of organized form or structure. And so even though there have been, you know, claims that there are gangs in our prison system, and I would say that the drift, the wind from America that comes here, more of a cultural thing that we try to adopt it rather than that is formal and structured and organized in the same way we see in America... And perhaps in relation to the prisons then, why we do see less gangs um, structures in the prisons is because actually we don't really have the same formal organised gang structures outside of the prisons that America has seen. And so also I am a member of the Justice for Mark Duggan campaign. I wanted to mention that briefly. I got involved in that campaign because I was very... Very, I found it very troubling the way that this narrative of gang was used to criminalise, um, well, basically to justify his murder, and I will call it a murder, because if you're familiar with the facts of the case, I think you'll find there's not really sound legal, legal reasoning to say it was anything other than that. But again, it's to do with the state violence that Lisa has so well touched on today. So in relation to definitions then, what would we say, or do you have any thoughts on how we can you know, solve this issue? Because the idea of gangs is mentioned in legal forms that we use in our, in our criminal law um, in more places than one. For example, you can't have the defence of duress if you're seen to have gang association. Joint enterprise is loosely more group offending, but it does you know, mention the idea of gangs in specific cases. And so without having a cohesive idea of what a gang actually is, how can we be using it in our criminal law? That's my question. Thank you very much for your question. And uh, yes. Um, hi, I am part of a direct radical feminist group based in London called Sisters Uncut, which is for all self-defining women. Um, we recently took action at the suffragette premiere where we lied on the red carpet. We laid on the red carpet. Um, we take direct action for cuts to domestic violence and women's services um, across London and across the UK. And I would be interested to know what you think your role is um, of protesting and direct action in creating social justice and social order inside and outside of prison. Thank you. So we have three minutes for our, <laughs> our panel to respond. Should we go in reverse order this time? Yeah, very quickly. A minute um, each. Well... You know, brilliant that you're you're here. Actually, mm. <laughs> um, in fact, actually, for both of the the questioners, um, you should probably be sitting here and telling us. Um, firstly, protest and direct action. You know what I think. I'm, I absolutely think for social justice, there's only one way that we do that, and that's to do, that's to disrupt order. Any time we, we are sort of working within the, the, the realms of order, we will never make any sort of real social justice changes. So disorder, for me, 
is really the only way that we are going to protect ourselves and each other. Um, and you really should probably be up here talking about this because I absolutely agree with you that this definition of gang um, is a classed and racist term, actually, that I think we should get rid of. I mean, I don't have much to add. I completely agree with you. I think when you say oh, we use the word gang in the legal system without actually having a cohesive idea of gangs, that's exactly the problem in the law. Um, and it's, it's I, I suppose the word gang is a convenient label that can be used to, to um, draw people into the criminal justice system. That's essentially what's happening. Um, I couldn't agree more that it is a problem and that, yeah, there needs to be something uh, done about it. I have nothing better to say than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, with admirable succinctness, I think we've heard some really fantastic arguments this evening and had the kind of dialogue that I hope between these different disciplines. And I think we should end by thanking, on behalf of the Law Department, on behalf of all of us, our speakers, for their vision of alternative social order, not gangs. Thank you.